welcome to Doomsday Watch. I'm Arthur Snell. Remember what happened this summer? Towns across Europe saw devastating floods. Rainfall at a scale not seen in a thousand years. Buildings that had stood for hundreds of years were washed away. Entire streets disappeared, cars scattered like children's toys. And all this happening in some of the world's richest, safest, supposedly dullest places. This is the rubble from a terrace of two or three houses that were completely dismantled during the floods. And you wonder how can water be so powerful? And then you look under the bridge there and see what the water was carrying with it. Trees, concrete, bricks. The force of that being swept down the river is what took these houses to pieces. And at the same time, in other countries, water had disappeared. Multi-year droughts leaving millions at risk. This is it. This is the iconic Hoover Dam in all of its glory. And Wildfires wiping out entire towns. You know you've reached the front line of the fires before you even see the flames. Night is starting to fall here and it makes fires hugely visible, terrifying in fact. Water is such an important resource for all of us in ways sometimes we don't even think about. But we also have to acknowledge that we're facing more and more threats worldwide. Uh, we see the growing risks of climate change and the threats of forest fires because of drought and increased flooding, the increase of extreme events on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, I worry about tensions growing over access and control of water, continued outbreaks of water-related diseases, and devastation of natural ecosystems that also depend upon the water that we're taking from them. Uh, these are the challenges that, that we face if we don't get our water problems under control. Politicians are always talking about climate change, but are they talking enough about water? It sounds crazy, but this is the big question. Is the world running out of water? Major globally recognized industrial cities right across the globe facing massive shortages of water. There was uh, absolute banning. Civil war was not caused by climate change, but it was absolutely influenced by those factors. If climate change is a shark, water is the teeth. Water is the big agenda item out there. And it's going to come back and it's going to bite us all really severely. It's a perfect summer day, and I'm standing next to the little stream that runs outside my house in the Cotswolds. The sound of a babbling brook, dragonflies glinting in the sunlight, the flash of trout. What could be more English, more peaceful? Uh, for me, this journey really begins at the beginning. Uh, when I was about 9, 10, 11 years old and developed an interest and a passion in fly fishing. And in later years, I became chairman of what is known as the Amwell Magna Fishery. It's the oldest fly fishing club in the country. And for 180 years, we've been looking after nurturing and fishing a two and a half mile stretch of the River Lee in Hertfordshire. If you're struggling to make the link between a classic 1970s punk track and fly fishing in the home counties, let me help you out. 
Fergal Sharkey, the former lead singer of The Undertones, is also a passionate fisherman. But he's more than that. He's become one of Britain's leading activists for water conservation. We rather curiously, five or six years ago now, found ourselves in a position working with Fish Legal. And the shortened version is we got probably within 30 minutes of having to take the Environment Agency to the High Court. The river was beginning to stagnate and, in fact, was beginning to suffer from eutrophication. Having to go to those lengths of working with Fish Legal just to get the Environment Agency to do the right thing, that gave me an itch. That if we had to do that, what on earth else was going on out there that nobody knew about? And what's your um, your perspective on what should be happening, both here in the UK, but also at a global level? Uh, well, what we're missing here is quite simply two things. It's called political leadership. That's the first issue that you have to address. In terms of the British water industry, last year in 2020, water companies in England spent over 3.1 million hours dumping sewage into local rivers on over 400,000 separate occasions. And the industry has simply made off with as much money as it possibly could. And by inference, that meant investing as little as possible in their own futures and in developing their own networks. They have now paid out over £60 billion in dividends to shareholders whilst filling our rivers full of sewage. Now, to take it back in a slightly global perspective again, in this country, we use state-of-the-art, class-A, triple-A star drinking water to flush away human waste. Now, explain that to someone living in another part of the world that has to walk five miles with a bucket They try and just gather up what water they can from some mosquito-infested muddy puddle to then walk five miles back home again. Tell that person, we use state-of-the-art, world-class, triple-grade-A drinking water to flush away human waste. That's how absurd the whole thing has become here in England. So the truth is, uh, water on a global level, listen, you can sit and look at it right now. We've got the northwest coast of North America experiencing its biggest heat waves in decades, and if not since records began, and yet complete villages and livelihoods and lives be lost and homes and businesses being destroyed by extraordinarily rare floods in Germany and Belgium. Something's going on out there, guys, and it's not working in our favor. And we're now just going to have to start addressing that. And I think you're absolutely right. Water is the big agenda item out there that is still not being properly addressed and it's going to come back and it's going to bite us all really severely. Rivers full of sewage. We seem to have come a long way from rock star glamour. So let's try to get back to something a bit more elegant. This used to be a riverbed. Green isn't after the oil. He wants the water. He's creating a drought. I Promised Elegance. That was James Bond in Quantum of Solace, a film whose plot hinges on the privatisation of water supplies in Bolivia being weaponised to hold the country to ransom. Sounds a bit far-fetched, a bit Dr Evil. Well, around the turn of the millennium, the water supply of Cochabamba, one of Bolivia's largest cities, was privatised. As a result, The water rates went up about 35%, more or less overnight, in one of the poorest countries in the world. 
For ordinary workers, water was now taking about a quarter of their monthly income. People who didn't pay would have their supplies cut off. Riots broke out, the army was called in, and a young man was killed. There's a long history, interestingly enough, of movies where access to water, conflicts over water, even going back to the early westerns in, in U.S. filmography from the 1930s and 1940s, where farmers are fighting over access to, to water, uh, up into up to modern movies like the James Bond movie you mentioned, where water is a is a compelling uh, element in the plot. That's Peter Glick founder of the Pacific Institute and a world-renowned climate scientist. But this broader issue of privatization is another important one. Um, you know, even if a private company provides our services, delivers the water to us, takes away our wastewater and treats it, first of all, that's a monopoly. You know, there's one set of pipes coming to your house. There's no competition. So water service, public or private, is, is a monopoly. And for that reason alone, it's critical to have government oversight. The protection of our natural ecosystems is a public good. If private companies were totally responsible for, for environmental protection, I mean, we, we know where that would go because private companies don't have an incentive to protect the, the environment. That's why we have laws to protect the environment here in the United States. We have water quality laws and laws to protect endangered species. Uh, and so whether or not your services are being provided by a private or a public company, it's critical to have that government oversight to protect the public good aspects of this. It includes making sure that everybody has access to water, regardless of ability to pay. Uh, water is a human right. The UN declared that in 2010. You know, I didn't say this at the beginning, but one of the global challenges around water is the failure to provide safe water and sanitation for everyone on the planet. It's the 21st century. We know how to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone, but we failed to do it. There are hundreds of millions of people today that still don't have access to safe drinking water, and literally billions who don't have access to adequate sanitation services. You know, something I imagine everyone listening to this pretty much has taken for granted, but it's not true in much of the world. And so providing safe water and sanitation for everyone, which is a target of the UN, it's a goal of the Sustainable Development Goals, the, the failure to do that is also a source of tension around the world. You know, some of the riots that we've seen, the, the violence around water, has been from communities that either don't have access to safe water and see other areas getting water that they think belongs to them, public or private, you know, disputes between cities and farms, or private companies taking water in regions and bottling it or using it for production in regions where the local communities don't have access to safe drinking water. That's caused enormous tension. So, a picture is starting to emerge. You know, in 2019, it was a very, very dire situation. That's Akash P, Deputy Commissioner at the Chennai Metropolitan Water Board. The city of Chennai covers roughly an area of 426 square kilometres, and it has a population, fixed population of 8.5 million. So essentially, Chennai needs roughly 1,000 million litres a day. And out of that, around 65% of the water supply is met through reservoirs, which is not fed by any perennial rivers. So these lakes, these city lakes, depend on the rainfall to fill it. If the rainfall uh, fails in a couple of consecutive monsoons, then we are in deep trouble. So what happened was in 2016, there was a, both the monsoons failed. But in 2018 again, again we had a severe crunch of rainfall. 
so that you know two alternate years in two alternate years of monsoons failing so the effects got coupled and you know it came as a came as a big uh, disadvantage in 2019 in which we faced acute water shortage in june 2019 chennai a city with roughly the same population as london ran dry the city no longer had any water there was uh, absolute panic uh, to begin with you know you know uh, as you can uh, make out you know largely whenever there is a lot of uh, unrest uh, i mean social unrest much of it spills spills into the social media also so during these times in twitter there was a uh, you know hashtag running uh, saying where is my water so people were actually concerned people were actually angry they were panicking so people started uh, booking a uh, water lorry for themselves so the booking time for water lorries were uh, around 40 days you will not believe it, 40 days so the situation was that bad because you can obviously when you go to the streets you can see the sight of lorries flying uh, like hundreds and thousands of lorries flying on the streets and they overcharging the people so the situation uh, was actually panic uh, it was a panic situation it was very scary over decades The wetlands that surround Chennai have been wiped out by unplanned development. Canals have been constricted and blocked. Traditional water storage systems have become degraded. Chennai um, expanded considerably in the 2011. Almost all the cities of India have uh, suffered from this issue. Since the liberal you know India has a very large population of uh, population of around 1300 million. So uh, inevitably in Chennai as in many other indian cities as in many other cities across the globe there has been a massive build up on uh, the marshlands but chennai was largely safe because we had you know chennai was the pioneer in starting desalination plants in india but you know if the de- uh, i'm just uh, thinking aloud if the desalination plants were not there and all the all these uh, active involvement uh, from the engineers of the board were not there then you know uh, probably there would not be any other alternative other than to evacuate evacuate yes he did say that a city the size of london at risk of being abandoned for lack of water at least here in rainy old britain as long as we can keep on top of the flooding we know we won't be running out of water that's right isn't it fergal so for me one of the most extraordinary bits of hypocrisy At COP26, ministers stand on a stage in this country and lecture other nations about Amazonian rainforests. And yet, in our own backyards, we have some of the rarest ecosystems on the planet. We all know about coral reefs. There are more, ten times more coral reefs than there are chalk streams. And we ignore them. They don't exist simply because they're in our own backyard. And we, quite frankly, don't give a fuck. it is extraordinary so what what is it that we have done that has turned a chalk stream as you described earlier into a kind of stagnant pond in some cases well the uh, the issue for the chalk streams is that they now find themselves surrounding the biggest conurbation and concentration of population in the united kingdom under london and the southeast of england now for a water company chalk stream and the chalk aquifer is as addictive as crack is to a crack cocaine addict a local easily accessible source right on the edge of the biggest market in the country that's unbeatable commercially so these water companies they've treated this as sort of easy money it's great water it's there they they pipe it into london but 
you've mentioned here, you know, we have uh, bodies such as the Environment Agency. <laughs> what have they failed to do, which well, has led us to where we are? I, I, I'm tempted to quote that old uh, Westminster thing about you might think that, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> we know that as early as 1963, some of the leading hydrologists in the country were already flagging up, and I'm actually quoting that the chalk aquifer around London has been pumped almost to exhaustion. And since 1963, the population of London has grown by 2 million people. We have moved from a almost breadline type economy. And by that, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where people would take their laundry to the laundrette on a Saturday morning to do the washing. Yep. So we all now have shower rooms, showers. We've got two cars in the garage that we insist in cleaning. And our water consumption per capita has just exploded. By way of example, Hertfordshire on the edge of London, home to about 10% of the world's total supply of chalk streams. Hertfordshire has an average per person consumption of about 174 litres of water per person per day. Per day. And compare that to Scandinavia, Germany, where you start thinking about 84, 86 litres per person per day. So it's almost double what the consumption is in some other European countries. We're decades behind in investment and in our infrastructure simply because we got fat, we got lazy, we got complacent, and we thought that this massive supply of cheap, high-quality water would last forever. Well, here's where we now are. London, as we speak, is now running out of drinking water. By 2050, we're facing a national shortage of 1.2 billion litres of water per day. There's no way to transfer water from Wales, Yorkshire, Scotland, or anywhere else. We have one desalination plant, which isn't turned on most of the time. And when it is, it can only supply and process a maximum, I believe, of about 10 million litres of water a day. We're now facing a shortage of 1.2 billion litres of water per day. There has been a massive oversight in political leadership. Regulations utterly failed both the consumer and the environment, London now finds itself on a list of one of the nine cities in the world most likely to run out of drinking water. Major globally recognised industrial cities right across the globe, and they're all now facing massive shortages of water and no way to secure water supply for their reticence and citizens. important basic attributes of water. Um, we live on a very, very water-wealthy planet. It's a very blue planet, but only 2.5% of all the water on Earth is fresh water. And two-thirds of that fresh water is locked up in glaciers and ice caps. So less than 1% of all the water on Earth is fresh and accessible to us. That's Sandra Postel, director of the Global Water Policy Project. She's been researching and writing about water and its management throughout her adult life, and in 2021 
received the prestigious Stockholm Water Prize, often described as the Nobel Prize for water. The two other things that that's important to remember is that there are no substitutes for water. You know, we're in the midst of a transition in our energy systems from oil and coal and natural gas to renewable solar and wind. We can't do that with water. And water is finite. And we can get confused about that because it's cycling all the time. But in any given watershed, there's only so much there. There's, all, there's a water budget. It's just like a bank account. And if you extract more than is coming in, you're going to have a depletion. In a sense, we all know that. And yet we do not always manage water with that basic truth in mind. And that's really what's gotten us into trouble. You know, in some sense, we've built water systems for a climate that no longer exists. And so, and this is an important facet of climate change where the basic warming of the earth, the heating of the atmosphere causes the atmosphere to expand. That's basic physics. And so you're getting more evaporation from the soil, from rivers, from lakes. More water is evaporating as a result of the atmosphere being able to hold more water. So you're getting dry areas getting drier from that greater evaporation. And then wet areas get wetter because the atmosphere is holding more moisture. And so it's going to be able to rain harder. So you have uh, both occurring and both are becoming more intense. We have loaded the dice for more of these kinds of extreme events. There's a water budget and we're in overdraft. And we've loaded the dice against ourselves. Where does that take us? Here's an important thing, too. I think nature in some ways has, has given us a very difficult hand, if you will, when it comes to water. Um, water is not often available when and where we need it. And so we've had to, in some sense, bend the natural hydrology of the planet to allow us to grow the food we need and produce the energy we need and provide drinking water to cities. You know, it's hard to imagine our world of nearly 8 billion people without this infrastructure. You know, we've got 60,000 large dams around the world, on the world's rivers. So these are very important. But on the other hand, this infrastructure has also had a bit of a Faustian bargain attached to it in, in, in the sense that it has broken the water cycle. Um, if you think about a dam, it's literally blocking a river from doing what a river is supposed to do, which is bring fresh water to the sea. And along with that fresh water, nutrients and sediment that restores the deltas and protects the marine environment. Um, you think about these large levees that we have built alongside rivers to control floods. Well, those levees also disrupt the natural workings of a river, which is to connect to a floodplain. And now we see with climate change that many of these solutions are not working as well. And so I do think we will need to see a slowing of growth, at least in cities that have been built where the natural water supply can't, cannot sustain it. So it's trite but true that we just cannot take it for granted. It may not be where we need it, when we need it, going into the future. Here's Peter Glick again. So climate change, of course, is uh, a critical piece of this. And as we change the climate, which we're seeing that we're doing, we're fundamentally changing where we get water and how intense droughts and floods are. And of course, those effects will in turn influence the risk of secondary effects of climate change on the resources that we really care about. 
I did a study a few years ago looking at the Syrian civil war. That civil war was not caused by climate change or water problems, but it was absolutely influenced by those factors. There was a very severe drought in the Eastern Mediterranean in the years immediately preceding that. Agricultural production, because water availability dropped, agricultural production in Syria dropped. It led to enormous rural unemployment problems and migration into the cities, which led to economic unrest and contributed ultimately to the political tensions and ultimately to the the Syrian civil war. And also subsequently led to enormous migration of people out of the area and refugee problems, secondary problems that ultimately affected other people all around the world, including those of us in in the wealthier parts of the world. You know, we worry about challenges associated with water-related diseases and pandemics if we don't get water quality problems under control. Uh, We worry about, in the climate area, rising sea levels, of course, causing huge numbers of refugees to flee coastal areas as sea levels rise, as coastal damages occur. You know, these all of these challenges are intertwined. So let's just stop and think about something for a moment the causes of the civil war in Syria. It was young people, inspired by access to the internet and fed up with years of living under the Assad dictatorship, rising up in a desperate cry for democracy, wasn't it? Well, perhaps that was part of it. But was it also about a long-term drought that had driven internal migration out of rural areas into Syria's cities, increasing tensions there that would later boil over into the civil war? which in turn sent literally millions of refugees into Europe, which in turn fueled nationalist politics across the continent, including our own Brexit campaign. Remember Nigel Farage's infamous breaking point poster with the image of a long line of refugees? Aaron Wolf is a professor in Oregon and one of the world's experts on transboundary water disputes. Water management is conflict management. Uh, you, you always have multiple users, multiple sectors, multiple interest groups, all vying for the same resource. And of course, the resource is absolutely vital to, to survival. So just normal everyday water management involves uh, always vying between different interests and, and interest groups. But then if you imagine putting an international border uh, on a watershed, and sometimes the the countries that share basins uh, aren't the friendliest nations in the world. And so you have Arabs and Israelis sharing uh, the Jordan Basin, for example. The Nile Basin has 11 countries sharing it uh, in North Africa, uh, Indians and Pakistanis, Azeris and Armenians. Uh, there's 310 transboundary basins around the world, and that's about half the land surface of the earth and 40% of the world's population uh, lives within these uh, basins that are shared by two or more countries. And so uh, on top of the normal tensions of water management, if a country, an upstream country, builds something like a dam that can impact a downstream country, uh, it can create, uh, exacerbate the normal tensions. And if the countries are generally tense, uh, it can really exacerbate normal relations between them. And so this is where we find transboundary tensions on uh, all the basins I mentioned. Somebody's building something and somebody else is uncomfortable with the impacts of that project. And if you were looking at the world in, in 2021, um, 
which are the most sort of acute water-related uh, conflicts um, currently un- underway? What we've done is, is assess what the indicators of, of water conflict are. Uh, internationally, for example, on the Nile Basin, Ethiopia is building a massive dam, the Grand Renaissance Dam, and Egypt downstream has been relying on, on uh, stable water supply for time immemorial and is deeply concerned about the, the impacts of this dam. Uh, so we find that dynamic in, in lots of parts of the world. Uh, Laos is building dams on the Mekong. Uh, China is upstream on most of the great rivers of Asia. And as they move towards cleaner energy, oftentimes that means more dams and more downstream impacts all through uh, South and Southeast Asia. Again, any water management is managing conflict. And I think one of increasing concern is the rivers where Afghanistan is the headwater. And this is true of the Indus uh, on one side with Pakistan and on the other side with Iran and into Central Asia. And so these are all very, very tense and, and fragile regions in and of themselves. But imagine now that the country that has the headwaters to all of those uh, rivers is now tremendously politically fragile. These are absolute areas of, of uh, tremendous concern. Uh, so the dynamics are very different, but there there is basically worldwide an inextricable link between uh, managing water resources and political conflict and cooperation. Peter Glick has compiled a database of water conflicts. It begins with Noah's Ark, but these conflicts are becoming more frequent. As you note, it goes back more than uh, four and a half or 5,000 years to, to around 3000 BC. That very first entry is sort of a, a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's an indication really that even in the myths and legends and early religions of the time, uh, water and conflict have been an important part of history. Uh, when we actually look at real historical records, the very first written conflict about water was actually in ancient Mesopotamia, about 2400 BC, you know, again, almost 4,500 years ago, a conflict over irrigation canals between two ancient cities in Mesopotamia. Uh, And of course, through time, there have been more and more examples of these kinds of conflicts. Uh, If you look at simply the numbers of events over the last century, there has absolutely been a very dramatic and, and I would say disturbing uptick in the number of events we've seen uh, around the world in the last few decades. Now, part of that may be that we're better at recording them. I mean, I have a I have an app on my cell phone today that if there's a violent conflict over water, I get a message about it pretty quickly. Uh, and so we're a little bit better perhaps at seeing and tracking these conflicts. But I actually think this is in, indeed a real uptick and I attribute it to a number of things. Tensions are rising over access to water. That's the water as a trigger component of the water conflict chronology. Uh, But there are two other aspects. There's also water as a weapon, where water or water systems are used as a weapon during conflicts that may start for other reasons entirely, for ideological reasons or economic reasons or disputes over borders or religion. But where water systems are used as a weapons, where dams are used to withhold water or to release water uh, as a weapon during a conflict. And we saw examples of this, for example, in Iraq and Syria during the recent conflicts there. 
And the third category is water as a casualty of conflict, where again, in conflicts that may start for some other reason, water systems are targeted during conflicts. Water treatment plants are bombed, pipelines and distribution systems are bombed. And we've seen very, very large numbers of these examples in the conflict in Yemen in recent years, where the civilian infrastructure was very, very heavily, and I would argue intentionally, attacked. And all of these kinds of examples make it into the database and I think are responsible for the uptick we've seen. But it's not just a story about conflict. You might be listening to Doomsday Watch, but we haven't actually got to Doomsday yet. Aaron Wolf notes how water may have driven conflict, but it's also driven cooperation. I think the, the optimistic uh, side of this is that historically, those same tensions also drive us to cooperation. Peter's chronology is only looking at the conflict side. So if we look at the instances of recorded cooperation, it's also increasing exponentially. If we look at the technology that's available to us for, for better water management from satellites to, uh, to real-time uh, monitoring of irrigation, to, uh, to, to better trade networks. Uh, all of these are also getting better. The fact that countries can't keep things secret any longer. We used to be able to hide uh, what we were doing to water within our countries from our neighbors, and you can't do that any longer. Uh, everything is transparent. Everything's out in the open. So I think all of the things that are pushing us uh, indicating increasing disputes and tensions also are pushing us towards uh, more reliance on each other, more recognition of interdependence, and ideally more uh, at least implicit, if not explicit, cooperation. I think it's increasingly becoming apparent how much simply helping people deal with the variability within their own natural resource is increasingly important to us as a global community. I don't know how it can be any more apparent than it is uh, now with the push of, of migration from south to north and with COVID driving potential instability around the world. You know, I think water is one of the most underappreciated aspects of, of planet Earth. You know, we, 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 we so take it for granted um, and again, it, we, we turn on the tap and there it is. But more and more, you know, we're seeing uh, that water is, is powerful. And um, when it's not in the right place at the right time for us, um, it can cause a lot of damage, whether it's too little or too much. And, you know, there's a saying that we hear in the water world now, uh, if, if climate change is a shark, water is the teeth. Globally right now, we have three, what I consider three existential challenges, really. We have a crisis in biodiversity, we are losing species, and we are losing populations of living things, right? The latest uh, Living Planet Index from the World Wildlife Fund shows that, for example, since 1970, the populations of freshwater vertebrates, so fish and frogs, for example, the populations of freshwater vertebrates has declined by 84%. That is a tremendous loss of life in a very short period of time. 
So this is the web of life on the planet that's unraveling. So that's, that's an existential crisis because we, Homo sapiens, are part of that web of life. We're not separate from it. It's hard, it's, it's, it's hard to remember that and grasp that, but we are not separate from it. So that's one. Then we have this crisis of water, which we've been talking about, that already hundreds of millions of people live in areas that are considered water stressed based on population levels and renewable water supply. And then third, we have the climate crisis, which is upending all of this. It's making the biodiversity crisis worse. It's making the water situation way worse. And then it has its own impacts on top of that. And we can begin, that's, that's really the, the optimistic side of things, we can begin to recognize this now and adapt. And that's, and that's so important to do. My concern is that we are not moving fast enough. You know, I remain, you know, depending on the day, optimistic that we can become more resilient. We can adapt uh, to the changes that we're seeing, but we don't have a lot of time. You know, we don't want to see more and more people flooded out of their homes. We don't want to see more and more cities losing their drinking water to record-setting droughts year after year. We need to begin that adaptation very soon. And, and resilience is a word we also overuse, but it really is the key. It's the ability to weather a bad situation, weather a big change, and, and come out okay. And it's going to take adaptation to do that. And all of these solutions we've been talking about, I think, can help us become more water secure by becoming more, more resilient. As we reach the halfway point of this series, we know that nothing happens in a vacuum. America's political instability makes it easier for China to exert its power, which in turn makes it easier for Russia to act in unpredictable and dangerous ways. Putin's behavior emboldens other autocrats, such as MBS, who is desperately trying to move Saudi Arabia into a post-oil economy and taking lots of prisoners as he does so. And in the post-oil economy, water is going to become one of the world's most sought-after commodities. Like Aaron Wolf said, water management is conflict management. And we'll see that in the focus of our next episode in Afghanistan, which hosts the headwaters of crucial rivers that feed all of its neighbours. America's chaotic retreat from that country and the Taliban takeover threw into sharp relief the limitations of Western power. Thanks for listening to Doomsday Watch and join us for the next episode, which picks up the story amidst the chaos of Kabul airport and asks, why can't the West win its wars anymore? Doomsday Watch is a complicated beast with many moving parts. So we're taking a two week mid-season break to give you time to take it all in. We'll be back on Wednesday, December the 29th for the second half of our series. In the meantime, there's plenty of extra material for our Patreon backers, including an extended interview with the brilliant Russia expert Luke Harding and extra reading from me. Search Patreon Doomsday Watch to find out more. See you in two weeks' time. Enjoy Christmas and don't have nightmares yet. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. 
Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>